0: Hey, everybody, this is Ortho Review Part 2. We're going to be covering the wrist, hand, and lower extremities for Emergency Board Review Podcast. Uh, again, my name is Steve Carroll. I run the YAMBASE podcast. And as always, I have to say that this screencast does not represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So let's get started. So uh, these are the first things that we're going to talk about some wrist fractures and dislocations. We'll go through each one of these uh, individually. So this is just a plain, normal x ray of the wrist. Uh, you'll see that you have all your uh, carpal bones here, your metacarpals here, your radius, your ulna. Your PZ form kind of hangs out in this general area. Uh, we'll go over this a little more. So the first one to talk about is a lunate dislocation. So this is a foosh uh, fall into an outstretched hand with significant force. So uh, you're going to see the spilled teacup sign on the lateral or the piece of pie sign on the AP uh, x-ray. Uh, basically, the lunate should look like kind of like a rectangle um, on a normal wrist x ray. So, if you look here, you kind of see that you know the lunate is kind of rotated here, kind of looks like a piece of pie, or as Cartman from South Park would say, piece of pie. So, that, uh, that rec- rec- represents a lunate dislocation. And then on the lateral view, you're going to see what's called the spilled teacup sign, where the uh, lunate is kind of tilted onto its side. So as far as their dispo, um, they're going to re- get reduced by ortho. Complications can be median nerve injuries, acute carpal tunnel syndrome, and avascular necrosis. So perilunate dislocation. This is the most common carpal dislocation. This is a Fouche injury with hyperextension. So in this case, the teacup is upright, but the capitate is not on top of the lunate. So you'll see this kind of very clearly here. You see that the teacup is upright, but things just aren't aligned uh, the way they should be. Uh, they should be represent a straight line. It's kind of crooked to the side. So, scapho lunate dislocation. So, this is most common carpal ligament injury. This is an acute tear of the scapho lunate ligament, and this is called the signet ring sign or the Terry Thomas sign. We'll talk about that in a second. So, basically, if you have what looks like a negative AP x ray of the wrist, think of this diagnosis because this can be kind of easy to miss. So, um. Basically what you're seeing is that you're kind of seeing a, uh, a big gap right here. So it kind of looks like a big gap in someone's tooth. So this is Terry Thomas, the famous comedian who this was named after, but I guess a more modern example would to be called this, uh, the Michael Strahan sign instead. So once again, if you have what looks like a normal uh, x-ray and you're just like, you know, what's abnormal? It's probably this. It's a lunate dislocation. Um, So another thing that you can also see is this signet ring sign where the scaphoid kind of tilts toward the palm and it looks kind of like a ring right here. So scaphoid fractures. Now this is the most common carpal bone fracture. And this is the classic snuffbox tenderness. So in these cases, x-rays may be negative. So what you're going to do is you're going to have the patient follow up in 7 to 10 days for repeat films if you're suspicious for injury. As far as their complications, uh, they can get avascular necrosis. Now interestingly enough, we usually think of uh, vascular problems as being worse in the distal portion of anything. but this is one case where the proximal portion is actually more at risk because there's actually a good blood supply to the distal portion via an artery. So these uh, patients all need a thumb spike a splint and or- referral to ortho. So basically the bottom line is anyone with a wrist injury and snuffbox tenderness needs to be put in a splint and referred for probably repeat imaging. What happens most of the times is that people just take the uh, take the splint off uh, once they feel better but you know the best thing to do is really to keep them in that splint if they're still having a lot of pain they should be re-imaged seven to ten days later and you can kind of see this is that so-called anatomic snuff box that we learned so much in anatomy and this is a you know kind of through and through scaphoid fracture right there so triquechial fracture this is the second most common fracture of all the carpal bones it's usually just a little dorsal chip Um, they can have some dislocations as well. Um, They're going to have some tenderness to the ulnar styloid. You're going to see this on lateral x-rays, put it in a volar splint. Not really something I think is very high yield. Uh, Lunate fracture, also, this is another kind of low yield one. Um, They're going to have tenderness over the mid-dorsum of their wrist or pain with axial compression of the middle finger. Their x-rays are often negative. They get a thumb spica, and they can also get avascular necrosis. Now let's talk about some high-yield hand injuries. Uh, First of all, the boxer's fracture. So this is a fracture of the neck of the fifth metacarpal. And, um, you know, if you play sports at all, you know that this is kind of a misnomer because... Um, if you punch correctly, no one should ever get a boxer's fracture. But, um, so as far as the degree of angulation, there's an acceptable acceptable degree of angulation for each finger. So it's 10, 10, 20, 40. I've also, I've also seen 10, 20, 30, 40 in different combinations of this. But the big key is is that your, your second finger, your index finger, you can't tolerate a, a lot of angulation because you need a lot of range of motion there. Whereas your fifth finger, you can tolerate a lot of angulation. Now, here's the key. You can't have any rotation in any digit. If there's any rotational, um, if it's rotated at all, that's not acceptable. Um, So the way they may trick you on this is they say, well, you know, there's 10 degrees of rotation, you know, and they just want you to send the patient home. Well, that's not the right answer. Um, So uh, angulation can be acceptable. Rotation is never acceptable. So as far as treatment, they get put in an ulnar gutter splint. They get an ORIF if there's unacceptable angulation or any rotation. So once again, you can kind of see with this uh, red box right here, that's where uh, Boxer's fracture is, right there. So fight bites. Uh, So these are any lacerations over the dorsum of the hands, especially if it has a fracture. And this needs to be evaluated as what we call this fight bite. Um, So these are often minor scrapes or injuries that just don't make sense with the history. You know, the patient says, well, I had like a brick fall on top of my hand, but it looks like, you know, they punched someone and knocked a tooth out. Um, so for these patients, they need aggressive irrigation and antibiotics. Don't suture any lacerations. Um, for the antibiotics, something like Unison or Zosin would be a good choice. Um, and Unison, that's a sublactam, ampicillin, and Zosin is pipericillin, tazobactam. Uh, so any lacerations on or near the joint, should need an ortho evaluation, and they're most likely going to need a washout wash in the OR. These can be high-risk injuries because uh, if, in, if the infected joint doesn't get taken care of, uh, patients can have long-term uh, bad things happen to their hands. So ulnar collateral ligament rupture, this is called the gamekeeper's or skier's thumb, and this is a valgus stress that tears the ulnar collateral ligament. Um, it may cause a small avulsion at the tendon site. They get thumb spica and ortho follow-up. So here's kind of the mechanism of it. You get this stress right there in the joint. Um, Supposedly this is called gamekeeper's thumb because gamekeepers would use this joint to break the necks of rabbits or something like that. You also see this small, uh, that can be a small vulgar fracture right there. So they just get a thumb spica and ortho follow-up. So boutonniere deformity, this is force flexion at the PIP joint and hyperextension of the DIP joint. This may not be immediately present after injury, If there's a concern for injury you're going to splint the PIP in extension and refer to a hand surgeon Uh, so let's go back there so this is basically what what this kind of looks like Um, so you're going to splint this in hyper in extension to make sure that it kind of heals up straight and gets referral mallet finger this is an extensor tendon laceration or disruption at the DIP joint so the patient's unable to actively extend their DIP joint um, this is usually a blow to the tip of the finger while extension, so like say someone's going to catch something and get their fingers jammed straight back. Um, so you're going to splint them in hyperextension for six to eight weeks, and this is really important to make sure this heals correctly as well. If there's an associated fracture, you know, they get a splint versus pinning done by ortho. The delay complication for this is a swan neck deformity. And so this is what a mallet finger kind of looks like. You can kind of see that little that little fracture there, right, the tendon insertion joint. And this is what the finger sprint looks like. So it, it keeps it nice and extended so it can heal properly until they get follow-up. So Dequervin's tenosynovitis. this is just a simple overuse injury and definitely not emergent. Um, this is pain on radial aspect of the wrist, tenderness over the radial styloid. And so Finkelstein's test is this classic pimp question where you're going to put your thumb inside your palm wrap your fingers around it, and then pain with ulnar deviation or kind of going downwards. Um, they get NSAIDs as one in position of comfort, you can kind of see this is kind of the relevant anatomy here. You have tendons that go through the sheath, they can get inflamed and you can get pain with that. So hand infections and other injuries, we're going to talk about all these right here. Let's talk about paronychia first. So this is an infection of the lateral nail fold uh, on the uh, volar surface. So this is, can be caused by staph and strep, your usual kind of cellulitis bugs. Um, they're, if they present really early, sometimes you can just do antibiotics and warm soaks. But if you have something fluctuant, you, um, you know, you're know you going to do an incision and drainage, send them home with some daily warm soaks. Um, you don't really need antibiotics unless there's a lot, there's a lot of surrounding cellulitis. So for chronic paronychia, this is kind of a different animal. This is people um, like dishwashers and people who are exposed a lot to water. This is usually a fungal thing. Um, so you give them topical steroids and topical antifungals. So on the left here, you see this is obviously a paronychia right there. you do a digital block, numb up their entire finger, and then do an incision and drainage. Um, you know, stick a scalpel in there and kind of uh, use a you know, hemostats kind of break that up and release that. This is a case of chronic paronychia. You can kind of see it's kind of all over all fingers. There's no real fluctuance there, but this is a, a result of like repeated exposure to, uh, to water. So, felon. So, this is an infection of the pulp space of the fingertip. It's usually caused by staph. Um, so, for this, you're going to want to IND them at the point of maxim- maximum fluctuance and tenderness. So you're going to do a central longitudinal incision, distal to the distal flexion crease. And I'll show you this in a second. So you can do it either on the right on the palm or on the radial or ulnar surface. Um, you're going to pack and splint these and give them antibiotics. Um, they, you should remove packing in 48 to 72 hours and then do warm soaks. Um, these patients really should get some sort of close follow-up with a hand surgeon as well. Um, so this is kind of a felon. You see that it's, it's more about the pulp space right here and not about the nail folds so there's two ways to incise these one is right here on that polymer side right here and you can kind of break it up the other way is to do it kind of on the radial or ulnar side wherever is most fluctuant you just want to make sure that you avoid the nerves and the arteries that run uh, more towards the front right there so uh the next question is uh you know what's this lesion right here so uh maybe they say it's kind of itchy it's kind of painful So this is herpetic whitlow so this is hsv type 1 or type 2 infection it causes some localized burning itching and pain prior to the vesicles forming for these uh, you'll want to splint them give them pain medicines and oral antivirals uh, if early infection or immunocompromised do not surgically drain these um, because they can get secondary infections and delayed healing so just splint pain meds and oral antivirals so flexor tendonitis, so this can be, a, you know, an orthopedic hand emergency. This is usually from some sort of puncture wound, although immunocompromised people can get it from just about anything. Uh, staph and strep are the usual culprits, and you know, everyone's gonna talk about cannaval signs. So you just kind of think about it, it makes sense. You're, uh, your finger's gonna be in slight flexion because there's, a, you know, infection of the flexor uh, tendons right there. There's a symmetric swelling, or what's called a sausage sausage digit. Um, there's tenderness along the flexor sheath and then there's pain with passive extension and that kind of makes sense because if it, You're holding inflection because that's your position of comfort passive extension is going to make it worse So These patients get IV antibiotics if it's uh, trauma related, you know, ANCEF's is a good choice if There's no trauma, you know, you can consider that this could be gonorrhea and give the patient ceftriaxone and azithro um, the, These patients need an emergent ortho hand consult for surgical drainage Give them tetanus as needed and elevate and splint. So this is an example of a flexor tennis device. You kind of see that whole kind of swelling of the finger redness. I'm sure that's tender. I'm sure he was kind of holding in a little bit of flexion as well before this picture was taken. So high pressure injuries. So these are kind of deceiving. So, like these are grease or paint guns. And what happens is that um, people get shot in the hand or you know any part of their body and the fluid travels down the tendon sheath and damages flexor tendons. Uh, You're going to want to know this. This is very high yield. This is often tested because it's very low-hanging fruit. Um, So the reason why is because the entrance wound may be really tiny, but the damage is very severe. So you'll want to get x-rays, splint, and elevate the extremity. um, Broad-spectrum antibiotics update their tetanus. Um, You can give them analgesia, but don't do any digital nerve blocks because that can increase, increase compartment pressure. And they you need an emergent orthopedic consult. So I'll show you what I mean right here. So, you know, this guy, you know, working with a paint gun, he's like, you know, he, he gets this, what seems like this minor little wound here. But when they open up, he's got paint all in this uh, tendon sheath right here. So don't blow these people off. Um, they need aggressive therapy. So let's talk about compartment syndrome, a big orthopedic emergency. So any injury that causes increased pressure in the muscle compartments can compromise circulation and lead to compartment syndrome. So for example, crush injuries, supracondylar fractures, especially in kids, any sort of constrictive dressing or cast, uh, also radius and ulna fractures can do it as well. So compartment syndrome, pain out of proportion is the first sign. Um, and you're also going to see increased pain with passive stretch or active contraction. So if you think about this, it makes sense. If you, passively, if you passively, let's say you're worried about lower extremity compartment syndrome in the, like the calf area. So you passively stretch your ankle. That's going to you know, increase their compartment you know, pressure or movement. Or if you tell the patient, hey, actively press down on the gas or actively plantar flex, that's going to you know, kind of rub those muscles against the compartment as well. Um, paresthesias, paralysis, a palpable tense compartment, kind of later signs, and then pallor and pulselessness are late and very late signs, respectively. These patients need an emergent ortho consult. So technically, compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. So if you see the option to check compartment pressures on on the board review, on the actual exam, it's probably not the right answer. However, just keep in your head that if they have a compartment pressure that's greater than 30, it's concerning for compartment syndrome. So zero to 10 is normal. Don't elevate these patients' limbs, it decreases venous return. So once again, I can't stress that enough. Um, It's a clinical diagnosis. So the answer here is almost always to get an orthopedist right away. Don't even bother to check compartment pressures. And you know, in theory, um, you may have to do an emergent fasciotomy yourself if an orthopedist is is a long ways away. But uh, it's a clinical diagnosis. So amputated digits. So basically, you just have to know this cold. Um, you want to irrigate with them with normal saline to remove any gross contamination. Wrap in sterile gauze, moisten with saline. Place the part with the saline gauze in a sterile, water-cut, tight container. And then place this container on ice. You know, you don't want to have lots of water, uh, ice water floating around directly touching the body part. That's the big thing that you want to make sure it doesn't happen. So that's the end of part two of Orthopedic Board Review. If you have any questions, please email me at steve at embasic.org and check out the other lectures and part three of Ortho Board Review are on emergencyboardreview.com.